The Title Block, episode number nine, Projection and the Future of Design. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and today I bring you a recording of a panel discussion at this year's Canadian Institute for Theatre Technology's Rendezvous 2014, the CITT's annual trade show and conference. I'm joined in this discussion by Scott Spidell from Texas Lutheran University, Eric Mongerson from Concordia University, and Ben Chason and Beth Cates from Playground Studios here in Toronto. Complete bios can be found in the show notes at thetitleblock.com forward slash episodes. In part one of two of this three-hour discussion, we talk about the history of projections, the dramaturgy of their use in today's theater, and the tech and techniques to integrate projection into your show. This portion runs about one hour and 20 minutes, so it's a bit of a marathon, but it was a fun discussion, and I learned a lot about the state of the art and the use of projection. I began by introducing the show to the live audience and having our guests introduce themselves. Why don't we just get started? Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, thank you very much for, to Monique and the rest of the organizers at CITT for allowing me to sort of try this experiment. I know this is not an experiment. Generally, panel sessions occur in the afternoon at CITT, but uh, this is being recorded for uh, a new podcast that, I'm, um, that I've started called The Title Block. Uh, my name is Michael Cruz. Uh, I'm a more or less X lighting designer at this point. Uh, I haven't led a show for a couple years, so I'd say it's X. Uh, I left the business about seven years ago to become uh, a paramedic, and I've gotten back into it doing podcasting uh, to sort of chat with Canadian disease, uh, diseases, Canadian diseases, <laughs> Canadian theater designers uh, about their history and their craft. And uh, the organizers here at CITT have, have graciously allowed me to record this session. Today we're talking about projections. It's uh, the current state of the art, past kind of uh, um, technology and uh, use of projections in the theater, uh, and what projections can add to the future of theater um, and where it's going to go. And I'm, I've been told that the future is now by uh, Beth and Ben, so uh, it should be a really interesting discussion. We have lots of time this afternoon. We're going to be here till about, uh, well, we can be here till 5 o'clock. I don't think we'll go that long. Uh, we will be having a break for um, coffee, etc., uh, in the middle, about the hour and a half mark. Um, feel free to interrupt, uh, ask questions. Uh, like I said before, there is a mic in the middle that's recording. If you could ask your question at the, uh, question at the microphone, um, that'll make sure I get it on tape. If you don't want to be recorded, again, let me know, uh, and I'll make sure to edit out your question um, from the final broadcast or podcast. Um, and you can approach me afterwards just to give me your name and then give me the context of your question as well so I remember who you are and where you asked it. If you want to be left out, then by all means, just don't use the microphone. Just raise your hand at your desk or whatever you're at your table and then... Uh, uh, and interrupt us uh, as you will. Um, so that's me. Let me introduce the panel. Uh, I'll have them introduce themselves. First of all, we have uh, Scott Spidell. Why don't you <coughs> tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm a uh, 
<laughs> what am I now? <laughs> I'm a uh, stage manager from Equity. I'm a ADC lighting designer and with video, I think. Uh, I'm a, a set designer uh, and an educator. Probably more than anything else, I'm an educator. And uh, that's good enough. Terrific. Uh, and beside him, we have Eric uh, Mondragon. I'm a teacher at Concordia in Montreal, and I'm more mixed up than Scott, I think. I have formal training from the U.S., both um, very traditional training and very crazy, stupid training. And I, and my most formal training is actually in scenic design. I uh, work most of my career as a lighting designer and a technical director. Uh, but I've also stage managed. I've done all kinds of different things. Um, and I've done video and I've done lights. Um, I've seen painted. I've done lots of different things. I don't, I'm a member of La Pasque and sort of different unions. Terrific. And I've already screwed up uh, Eric's name. It's Eric Mongerson. There we go. Thank you. So we'll just say that for the record. Uh, and then to my <laughs> right, we have uh, Ben Chason. I'm Ben Chason. I am an ADC projection designer and sound designer. Uh, I am also the creative director of Playground Studios at playgroundstudios.ca. Uh, I design lights and vi- I design video and sound for theater, but also we do installation work and lots of other kind of interactive work, if you will. Uh, mainly our work is in theater, and that's where we've come from. I started off as an audio technician and then became an audio designer, both system and content, and now most of my work is in video and child care. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, Beth Cates. Uh, I'm Beth Cates. I'm the other creative director of Playground Studios. Uh, I'm also an ADC lighting set costume and projection slash video designer. Um, we run the company together. We take care of our child together. And uh, I have no formal training. Uh, I technically didn't even graduate high school. So um, all of this has come from the, the self-taught and learning as we go kind of world. And, and like Ben, I, I come from theater, but we make these installations and, and have designs to do other things in that world, in the world of interactivity. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Welcome, everybody. And welcome to the title block. Uh, Scott, tell us about how we got to the point where we are now in theater with projections. Give us a little sort of context of the history of projections. Theater Projections 101. Yes, indeed. In 10 minutes. This is my, I'll do it in three. (laughs) This is my academic part of the conference session that, uh, the reason I get to get funding to come here. That's what it's all about. Uh, I lied. The, uh, we we can talk about projections in theater uh, or if you wanted to, you can go back to the cave storytelling and shadows on the walls of the caves uh, to telling stories and going from there. Um, or you can go to the shadow puppets of uh, China and South Asia and Turkey uh, to tell stories. Um, but really, uh, started off in about 1420 with a magic lantern and people projecting images of the devil on the walls. And But the first official re- performance recording as written down of projections in the theater for a performance was in uh, 1726 at the Hamburg Opera. I think the whole point behind what what I'm talking about is this is not new stuff. We've been doing projections in theater forever since the start of what we do, live performance. And uh, I'll argue this to the... We'll get later on. Anyway, um, 
but the academic uh, people might discuss uh, the 1726 might be wrong. It actually could have been as early as 1678, so really early. Uh, in the 1780s to mid-1800s, there were little salon performances that people called phantasmagoria, where they would do magic lantern shows in your, in your house and telling a story and projecting Again, devils, because that's the best part, and ghosts and things. Um, the interesting story is in 1886, a guy named Augustin uh, Le Prince applied for a patent in the U.S. and in England for, here's the title, a method and apparatus for the projection of animated pictures in the view of their adaption in, of operatic scenes. So 1886 was the first application of a patent for this use. Opera has always led the rules, uh, this whole train of, of all technology we do in, in our business, I think, and uh, certainly there. In 1896, there was a version of Carmen that toured uh, the U.S. that had a bullfight uh, film in the fourth act. Uh, Let's see. Of course, we know other stuff. Mid-1910s to mid-1920s, uh, artists such as uh, Evan Gogh or Edwin Piscator um, films in many of their productions. Um, in Tennessee Williams' notes, production notes of uh, The Glass Menagerie, he wanted projections specifically to uh, give accent to certain values in each scene. That was his request. Um, mind you, they couldn't do it very well at the time, and it didn't end up happening, and so we kind of neg negated that, but, it, but that was the request. Um, uh, for me, projections now have become so uh, almost ubiquitous and requested by everybody that we've got to put projections in here. I think they're horribly overused and horribly badly used, and uh, I think we're going to need someone like Stanley McCandless, who came in in 1932 to say, okay, you guys, with your new fancy electric lights, you're making crap of our art, to say, here's a method to light your damn stage. You don't need to do all of this and this and this because you're ruining the story. And I think we are so intent of using these tools because they're now so, what we think are cheap and easy to access. We are forgetting what the story is. And it's a real danger, and I think we need a new version of a method for lighting the stage. And that was my soapbox, and I'm getting off it now. <laughs> That's terrific, Scott. I just want to ask you a couple questions just as a follow-up. When we talk about the early um, technology, mm -hmm. um, was this gaslight? Was this, I mean, it the would, earliest stuff would have been gaslight, right? The, that 16 was was. Candle. I mean, I'm right. not sure how much you'd get out of it. But. I, well, I know that's kind of surprising. <laughs> like, how bright can you get on yeah. stage? Um, I, your candle's only as big as your candle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One. <laughs> so, uh, I guess if uh, it wouldn't be a very big image or a bright image. Lots of stuff talk about fireworks in a production. In a production. So mm -hmm. again, the uh, uh, magic lantern being used to project a single image. And I guess if they moved it. Right. It's even more exciting. And with these shows, uh, I mean, when I think of Magic Lantern shows, I think of uh, like a like the entire thing is about the Magic Lantern rather than being a, a support for uh, a, a live performance. Well, that Phantasmagoria stuff was specifically that. It right. was a live performance done in a house, in a house, and right. they would project and tell stories using that as a... Right. 
at the beginning it was, oh, this is magic, look, it's like a camera obscura. All of a sudden we've got this nifty thing. But this was storytelling. Mm. And how about the stuff that was used in the 19, you said when uh, we were doing large, like Pescator, when he's yeah. doing his lar large format, I guess the, the actual projection of movies or yeah. moving pictures, was that... Uh, was that a support for the set design, or was that something? Was that storytelling within? Was that a way of telling a story that you couldn't tell it um, otherwise, or was it a novel thing they were incorporating because it was? You know, I, I think it was a novel thing, and he was taking advantage of. I mean, people could argue either way. I mean, uh, it's it's spectacle, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, if we've got the technology to make it bigger, let's try that. I don't think it was integral to story specific, right? But uh, but it certainly was big, right? Exactly. Okie dokie. Well, that brings us up. I mean, we the the and and Beth and um, Ben can tell us a bit more about this as well, um, or maybe Eric is a better place to go when we talk about modern projections, not necessarily film. Um, uh, using a like a moving storytelling film in, inside a theater production, but um, set or um, productions as scenery, uh, use of pining projectors and, you know, Joseph Svoboda and those kind of artists who are using projections as scenery elements. Um, can, you, do you, can you give us a context for that in the 20th century? Like, can you, can you sort of uh, describe what that, up until the use of video, like what was going on? And um, For me, it's the same thing. And in fact, I was quite shocked when younger designers and students started talking about projection um, without putting the word video in front of it. Mm -hmm. And there were a few years there where we didn't know what, which one are you talking about. Right. So for me, it's a, it's a long evolution of it. But there, and, and before that, obviously, with, with shadow puppets and, and those kinds of things are still in use. And one of my students designed one in Las Vegas with this, you know, thousands, seat, thousands of seat auditorium. And in the, arguably at Ka, the, one of the most technologically advanced shows on the planet, and two characters come out with a lantern set on the stage and they do shadow puppets in this video. And that is more fascinating than all the moving, whatever, the stage going upside down, whatever it is. So um, it's, a, it's a, uh, a tradition of using it as scenery. I think that what's happened more recently is because the equipment's uh, more readily available and it's much quicker than using film, um, that... Uh, people are often trying to tell a story with the video rather than letting the actors tell the story and find ways that the, that goes in with it because the two conflict at some point. And I saw the same thing happening with visual artists doing scene painting or not even, you know, what they called scene painting, but I would call art that was behind the actors. It was just telling the story again. So I think what's uh, changing is our way of looking at it, not so much the technology is, uh, is a minor point. And that brings us to... Let's say let's let's say to a more integrated um, performance with video and projection. Um, uh, maybe uh, Ben, you can describe what you guys are are uh, what you guys are doing these days, and then we can talk about this <clears throat> specific tech after that. Um, okay, uh, a lot of what we do comes from where we ended up starting in video is because we were we were presented a show, we were already going to be working on it, and they said, well, we're going to do some stuff with some cameras. And we're going to also play back some stuff. So we're going to need to figure out how to do that. And so we figured out how to do that. And that's so for that particular script or the scripts that we're talking about in that case, that was integrated into the script. So it wasn't a sense if it if video overtook the actor, it was intentional or not. 
Um, <clears throat> but what's happening now, video technology is available uh, to almost everybody. Your Mac computer comes with a video editing software. Like, that's actually a humongous leap from when we started. We had decks and decks of VHS cassettes and uh, RCA switchers and just trying to make everything work to do a show live. People are doing that with, the, with their Mac straight out the box without fancy playback software like they're selling upstairs. Um, <laughs> Not that you shouldn't buy it. No, no, I would highly recommend some of it. Uh, do you want to speak more to, to the now or? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in our work, too, has taken on two streams. So there's been the, the work that we've done in developing shows, so where we've been involved from the beginning. So, yeah, it, it doesn't, it has been integrated. And because it's kind of where we started when, when we started working on video, that's the, that's what we've taken forward through to the more perhaps traditional uses of image, of moving image or projected image or video image on stage in, in trying to, um, integrate it into the storytelling. So it isn't, you're not just sort of like glassy eyed staring at, the beautiful stuff that's happening behind everybody or over everybody or around everybody and you've forgotten to listen to the text. Because um, mm -hmm. that is that is absolutely happening. It's happening all the time. And it's, and it's because we're at this point in the learning curve where um, not everybody is familiar with how to, to use what the best practices are and whether there can be anything like that defined. That's a, that's a great topic. Um. <laughs> And to speak to that, uh, we, we sometimes lecture at, at educational institutions, um, and we talk about the dramaturgy of design, and in particular the dramaturgy, the digital dramaturgy, because we're, we're, that affects as simple things as, like, how do we black out that projector has such a humongous ramification on your actual show. Like, if you can't actually do a blackout, so now you need to incorporate this video black element in your show. So that, that's a dramaturgical choice on your show. Rather than a consequence, like it used yeah. to be. <laughs> like, oh, okay, oh, we need someone to wave something in front of the video projector now because it's a blight. Or, or we need to find the right time for somebody to do that so right. that it's part of the show. Um, uh, integration is, is very much part of our practice. I'm not saying it, it works in every one of our shows. Um, we work in very small scale fringe size shows to uh, the biggest show we do is the Panto, the Ross Petty Productions Panto, where we have a 30 by 20 LED wall and a 20K projector that we map all the scenery to. So we that particular show, it's all razzle-dazzle. If, if you're looking for dramaturgical content in a Ross Petty Panto, you're looking in the wrong place. With <laughs> all due respect to Ross Petty. Oh, we love Ross. I haven't gotten any letters yet, but I'm sure that I'll get something. So let's just step back for a second. So we, I, I'd like to know where this is kind of coming from. Like we have the idea of the novelty of projection. Um, uh, it's a new technology. You can do things with it that you, you can do things with it at a, at a relative cost. It's much cheaper than building something that's giant and, and moving. But is it in the past we've used projections like I'm thinking of you know the sort of traditional ponies where you're 
It's a lighting fixture that you're doing something that other lighting fixtures can't do. You're projecting some, some semi-realistic or realistic high-res image. Scenic support. Scenic so, support. Yeah. So is it, So that seems like a no-brainer. Like That seems like an obvious use of the technology. Who is demanding the technology tell a story now? Is that because of some vocabulary that people have, that, that young directors have these days that is different than? Mm. No, I actually, I, I actually find that in that case, it's, it, often it's the director who knows the least about <laughs> how to manage all the, all the balls that are the design process. Um, because uh, often, particularly in the English-Canadian uh, aesthetic, directors come out of acting far more so than they come from design or any other discipline within the theatrical world uh, or are specifically just directors. I find most of the directors I know have acted on stage and have sort of merged into directing. Um, so I, I find even in a lighting session, you can blow them away by the simple trick that Alico can have a gobo. <laughs> right. You know. right. We had a question from the floor. Just wanted to clarify. Um, we talk about projection. We also including gobos or rear projection, like cyclorama, cityscape, that kind of thing. That would be all be projection. Sure. I mean, it's yeah. one sort of continuum. I think. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I've certainly done the terrible lighting designer thing where you're solving a problem with the you know the happy birthday gobo or whatever it is and it's 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 telling it's giving information now quickly in a projective sense that is unable that you have to use exposition for otherwise so yeah certainly um, do you guys have any comment on that on the on the sort of the approach that directors should take when they're using projection or the choices that directors need to make in order to i don't know be clear uh, dramaturgically Sure, I have uh, experiences in both extremes mm -hmm. where directors are brilliant and they really do understand it and they under, understand how that's going to work and how it would help and others where they just want to use projection on it. every show, whether it fits or not, they have no idea, but it has to be there. So it's a way uh, I have to calm it down to make it work anyway or put it in the background and, um, or I need to find ways to, to make it actually um, uh, do what's intended. So I think there's a, a wide variety of, of options. And for me, there is no line between what's a light and what's a projector. I use projectors as often to light the scenery, or I use the, um, uh, I tell stories with uh, projection, with Legos, with extra lenses on it. So there, so there's, for, uh, I guess a lot of times people think of projection as being realistic or non-realistic, but for me, it's really not. It's just a tool that does another thing on the stage. Right. What is the problem? What is the problem? What is the challenge that the director is trying to solve by using video in every or projections in every performance? Like, is it just a novelty thing, or is that how they tell the story? Sometimes it's because it's trendy, for sure. Right. And and they want to be trendy, and they, they know that that's trendy. Um, and other times it's just because of ignorance; they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And other times, uh, like I say, there are, there are a few directors who are really good at knowing how that works. And surprisingly, the ones that are good at it are often using it not in the way we think theatrically. So there'd be a screen on the stage. I remember early on, uh, before projectors were readily available, using the CRT screens, and this director wanted to put, we were doing a production of Quartet, but one TV monitor upside right and the other one upside down on either side of the stage, and we projected through a VCR machine uh, an hourglass. So we could control the sand going from the top monitor to the bottom monitor, and I said, oh, that's, <laughs> that's just crazy. We're going to be watching TV all night. We'll never see the actors. 
But it was fascinating because we knew what it was. There was no tricks. It was all right there. You ignored it. And it, and it went into your subconscious and it worked brilliantly. So you're aware of this time manipulation without watching it. So I guess the point is to keep your eyes open. There's always things that you think won't work might. Excellent. Uh, any other comments from before we just move on to the tech? No, I portion? think I think all of that too is design. Like that's our that's our job as designers is to say, well, I mean, whether it's as a lighting designer to say, well, no, red and green is not going to look good. So I'm glad you used that in your last show, but we're not going to do it this time. <laughs> or here's how we can do it. Or we'll do it all red and then all green. But that's our job as designers too is the managing the expectations and the making it or trying to fit that square peg into a round hole if the case is such mm -hmm. so yeah. well i think it's a good segue into who does what so yeah. traditionally my experience has been that the set designer has a problem to solve and asks the lighting designer to solve it so uh <laughs> <clears throat> not that set designers aren't great and wonder and i have the full respect but sometimes you're saddled with uh i need uh you know a forest on the upstage right thing and we don't want to paint one we want it to be stylized and this maybe it's a projection of a specific artist but then you're going back in the office and you're you know photocopying acetates to put in the, the panning projectors so um who i mean this is maybe a, an, an elementary question but Whose responsibility is it? Should we start with Scott? Do you, wanna, do you have a discussion that you want to? Uh, sure. Uh, for me, it, it's a discussion between the lighting and the set designer. And hopefully, maybe it's the sonographer. Maybe we've gone back to sonography um, because it is so integrained uh, inter and, and integrated now that uh, the sonography of the image itself becomes so important that we really can't separate light from set when we introduce projection um, because it affects both sides. It is, it is a crossover. Um, so uh, in the instances, who, who leads the horse? <laughs> I don't know who leads the horse. I think it's, I think it's, a, it's collaborative. It's collaborative art. We do collaborative art. This is the continuation of that collaborative art that we do. And uh, including the director's vision. And hopefully we can direct that in a, in a way that it becomes still storytelling and not, and not Ross Petty. I'm, I'm sorry. And not, <laughs> and not, not big show. And it's not spectacle. Right. We, wanted, we want to tell the story, please. Right. So I, it's, it's collaborative art. Um, so uh, I, I think there will be a resurgence of sonography. If you have um, if you have a show with projections in it, do you have to have a projection designer? That's we, our own responsibility. Our own responsibility is projection design. Uh, we at the ADC would like to argue, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, I would I would argue yes, and that doesn't mean that the set designer can't also be the projection designer, but to bear in mind that the decisions that a set designer is making will affect the projection designer, and the projection designer's decisions will affect the set designer. Um, but I feel that even when they're one person, you're just having that dialogue in your own head of, oh, geez, we've stuck a window in front of that screen. That's, that's not great. Or... Whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I actually do because there's a technical. Ex I believe that a projection designer has a technical expertise 
in both how to create that content, but also how to create a video system. Because I, because I come from an audio background, that's very much how audio design works, is that sound designers know not only how to make things sound good, they also know how to make the theater sound good. And I think the same can be said of a, of a video designer. That being said, there's a lot of filmmakers out there who create content, but don't necessarily, or photographers or whatever, who, who don't necessarily understand the technical ins and outs of how to get what they've created to the stage, or what the ramifications are about the technical choices that they've made. Um, so I think it's really critical to have somebody who knows that. And that does not have to be a technical director or production manager, because it's still creative choices. Not, and those creative choices, of course, have effect on budget. We, we're aware of that. But those technical choices are, those creative choices manifest themselves very much as a creative decision. And whether it's a drawback or an advantage to certain pieces of technology, that's what a designer can do, I think. Would you argue? You who do both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and have many times been the lighting, the set, and the projection designer. So I get to have the argument with myself. <laughs> um, and in, I'm, in fact, embroiled in that right now. Like, we've had to make a scenic choice that's affected the video, and so now we're dealing with that fallout. Um, I would say that, yeah, you do want a projection designer, there are scenarios where it is like all the director wants to see is, is the Great Wall of China on stage. So it's just a matter of how to get the Great Wall of China on stage. And if it's, if it's simple and all she wants or he wants to see is the Great Wall of China on a psych. Okay, that's, we could figure that out. However, bringing a projection designer in then means you have the person potentially with all of that additional knowledge who can say, great, we could just put it on the psych, or if you really want to bring it through to the audience, or here's another way to integrate it into your show. Or we could make a sunset, or we could make it at night, and so that in this scene, the Great Wall of China is blue, and then it, rather than depending on the lighting designer to try to make a video projection change color. So I think, <laughs> I think Scott, your statement about are we back to sonography, I think, is, I think in many ways we are back to sonography. Um, or we're back to the point where everybody needs to start talking right at the beginning, at the very, very, very beginning. So including the technical director. Inc yeah. Absolutely including the technical and the production director. Which, which is why I get yeah. confused. And oftentimes I don't know what I do on a production until it's over <laughs> because I'm the TD, I'm the lighting person, yeah. I'm the expert in six different areas. Yeah. And because we're just trying to tell a story. And all that doesn't matter. It's just that we have all this baggage and history of having worked in particular compartments in particular yeah. ways. That that's what happens. One of the... Um, one of the scenarios in which uh, I've experienced in the past, because especially when video was something that we only, you know, used at rock concerts, and when it was when it was as as just as, just as a television element, just as just to see somebody up close, um, the only people who knew how to do performance-related video that was video that was a video project or a, a filmic project that was strictly uh, that was wasn't just TV cameras were uh, f video artists, people whose job was to create video installations. They weren't necessarily theatrical artists. They're people who knew how to manipulate visuals, um, use all the tech to create a polished artistic statement. And when you, and, but they're also people who are, who are 
used to working by themselves and they're not collaborative artists. And when you bring them, because they knew, they knew everything they, you wanted them to know to, make, to pull this off, they came into an environment which was very collaborative and it became all about the video. The entire show is about the video. It's beautiful video. It was, it was slick. It was, it was well produced. It was something that nobody else would have thought of, but it hijacks the process. So how do you, like can you, well, this is a great question. Do we train people for this at theater school or do you go to fine arts college or do you do, like how do you get this training to, to integrate video into a theatrical production that supports the production and is not its own sculpture that everyone has to stare at instead of the actor for two hours? That's part of your design course. That starts there. Mm -hmm. It's still straight storytelling. So it's got to be integrated at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. It, well, it should be. I would, I would argue it's probably not currently. It's not. No, it isn't. And, and Lord knows that theater school budgets are not increasing anywhere. I know uh, tell somebody who has to replace their 30-year-old lighting board that they now also have to buy a bunch of projection equipment and 16 yeah, Macs to support the video. Yeah, and, of, and, the, and a media lab to use that. But there are certain educational institutions that have wings that deal with film and television that the theater department never gets to even go near that building. They don't know, but, and including the Banff Center, which has two amazing departments that do not talk to each other at all, at all, at all. And it's a shame because I'm the kind of guy that would know what to do in a video editing suite and please give me a green screen instead of me having to turn the rehearsal hall into a video studio. And there's there's value too in this in the video art approach um, as designers, like just to have that knowledge of like, well, how if I wanted to animate something, how do I do that? How do I how do I make that beautiful image of whatever swirling colors or star fields or whatever? And 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 now I can apply my theater knowledge to that and make it appropriate and work for theater. So. But yeah, it does need to go into the training so of our design students. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely something. Is it? I'm not, I have not been. <laughs> I've been out of the business for a long time, and I also haven't been in the theater school, you know, for a long time. Is this? Are there people here or in education that this is starting to be incorporated into their programs, or is this something that's not been discussed? Yes, it is. Oh, that's good. That makes that makes me really happy. The uh, school I'm, I'm moving to tomorrow. <laughs> In, in Texas, the department is dramatic media. Right. So, yes, it is being integrated. Mm -hmm. I think that's also coming from finally, well, Yale has a master's degree in projection, uh, in video design for the theater. And there's a few other schools that are start. Carnegie Mellon, I think, has one. So though that, that branch of education, because that's, that's a very important part, you can't get a job as an educator at a university unless you already have a master's or a PhD. I know, I've tried. Um, uh, <laughs> kidding. Um, th as those people are, are now out there, they are entering the educational institutions that are doing that. Now, Canada's always far behind in that, and I think, I think we're a ways away, but it also would help to open up places like uh, the Moment Factory or wherever, places where you could intern because they do video, but they do for live events. 
They might not be theater, but you could apply that then to a theatrical production. And bear in mind that Tosca has to jump off the wall at the end no matter what, right? <laughs> no matter how great you make your clouds, Tosca still has to jump off the wall. <laughs> Sorry, Eric, did you want to? Um, sure. <laughs> Again, for me, it's all mixed up. And, and, and when I've taught video, I've never taught it that I can remember, at least not in 100 years, as video by itself. It's always video and light mixed together or video and sound or some other uh, scenographic way of, of looking at it um, just because of the way um, I see it and also because we don't have a technical program. So we have to outsource all that stuff. So whether you need a carpenter or you need a video projectionist or you need whatever, an expert in whatever field you need, that's what you need. So, And I think that frees up the, the imagination a lot more because now you're thinking about ideas and then uh, collaborating with other people about how to how to uh, realize ideas. Because there exists, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you're at Concordia? Yes. I was at Concordia from 88 to 93, and there was fine arts film, uh, fine arts video. Yep. There was, in communication studies, there was a video pro production program and a film production program, and then there was the theater department. And I don't know how much collaboration existed between any of those. Almost things. none. Um, and, and still to this day, almost none, just because of the different um, uh, focus and goals of it. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't borrow from each other. We do. But it's not intended that the, the, uh, the purpose would be the same because they're so widely different. Um, uh, the that, theatrical use and the sculptural use and the communications use. I the technology is often the same. I would say, though, that some broadcast uh, schools are realizing that live event is, is becoming a huge market and so training their students to do live event is, is coming more and more part of, of their training. So I know at Ry Ryerson has a, has a bit of that, that one of, the, one of the courses you can take is to, it's not necessarily to understand theater, but to understand live events, which is at least a huge leap because there's nothing worse uh, as a designer to have a tech who's never worked in live because all they've ever done is sat in a studio. It's the same would be true of an audio tech who's never listened to speakers in a room. The problem with live is there's such a, a, a gulf between industrials and other kinds of, of use of the, of the technology. It, it, that's, that actually speaks quite well to, to what we're talking here today, where a lot of uh, industrial technology has is now working its way back into theater, but a lot of those industrial uh, commercial grade things started with theater people who were looking to make money in different ways and to theatricalize events, conferences and trade shows. Right, and conferences wanting something different, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, do we need, is there, a, um, is there an atelier kind of program in Canada that exists where artists who, are, um, who have been traditionally trained, quote unquote traditionally trained, uh, in uh, you know set lighting and sound can go and learn about video, uh, or is it really just see your pants? Not that I know of. Go to YouTube. No, and go to YouTube and you <laughs> figure it out, or you try to get an internship. You get that one work study placement in Banff. Right. Or I, as far as I know, there's no atelier kind of thing. Or you know, or you, Beth and Ben sometimes run courses. We sometimes yeah. run courses, yeah, and we uh, sometimes take interns. Contact us at info at playgroundstudios.ca. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there? Uh, oh, now I just forgot my question. It was a good question too. Uh, 
No, now it's gone. Edit that out. I'll edit it. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm edit it. Well, yeah, well, no, and okay. actually, just to talk, like, thanks for the plug, Scott. We, no that's part of why we started giving courses was because people were at, well, like, we get questions weekly, like emails and phone calls and whatever, um, about how to do stuff. So part of our, our MO in the last few years has been how, how do we best educate everyone? And that's including directors and playwrights. We've done workshops. We've done more workshops for non-technical, non-design people than we have for technical design people. Um, and which has been part of our push, too, is like how do we get everybody up to speed so that we can keep up because it's moving so fast. So, remember my question: Is there does there exist in Canada a head of video, or head of projection, or head of video or media design in any in kind any of theatrical, in, in any theater or any education institution? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking theater. Theaters. Uh, generally, no. So, in an in an IATSE situation, projection would bring in somebody from the local who would then become the head of audio or head of video. Uh, yeah, head of video. Um, those people tend to come a little bit from broadcast, but it depends on what that local does. Sometimes that local also is a film local, depending on, on your city and, and collective bargaining agreements. So if it's a film local, it's often a, it could be as much as a, a, you could end up with your head of video being a guy that usually plays movies at a movie theater. Yeah, projectionist, projectionist, yeah. I don't think any of the theater, like Citadel, doesn't have a head of video in the way that there'd be a head electrician or and anything like that. And certainly, even if every show had it, every show would be a different scenario. In part because that's, that's built on design, um, which we can come to, we, we'll talk about technology if you want. Right. And, and uh, that's a good segue. I had one more question, though, about whose responsibility should it be? So for the technical directors and the production managers in the room, who should they lay this onto? Is it going to be the head of, head of X? Or should they hire, like, should the assistant electrician be the projectionist uh, in the building? Or it's it's it an interesting or? scenario because we've, we've done projects with large festival theaters um, wherein we've done all the design work. We've been part, we've been the bastard child of the electrics department. So oftentimes our IATSE shadow, who just watches us program, basically, uh, uh, they will then then control is then fired by lighting. So there, once the show is up and running, there's nobody in charge of video. And I know in conversations with some uh, LX people, if something goes wrong with video, they, don't, they can't fix it. Show continues on. If something's wrong with the moving light, they can do something about it. Uh, in other scenarios, like in Toronto, we get, for the Panto, we get a, we get a video guy who is our video guy, he's also our go button guy. So he's there the whole, our whole tech process, which is a month, and he runs the show for a month. And somebody has to be in charge of it, whether it is the technical director or, or if the head electrician is really knowledgeable, and, and then that becomes a negotiation on their part. Except my lighting board runs RDM and MIDI and everything else, so I can hit my go and drive everything at the same time. So why would I hire another operator? Yeah, and that it is a, and that is a big problem. And we sat in the theater at a final preview of a big show and saw that happen because something went wiggy with the lights, and he was trying to fix the wigginess with the lights, and and the video did 
in was advance. three songs behind. It's probably the same <laughs> the same problem with why can't my stage manager run the lights? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then what the happens? Maybe the stage manager <laughs> could fix it. But yeah. yeah. You know, when they're you're... also trying to call the show and make sure that the, this happens and the fly doesn't hit the guy. So someone's got to concentrate. So we, so people have to think about it anyways. The technical directors and production managers have to think about. Who yeah. is running this? Let's make sure we have the resources. But okay. at the same time, I would say that it's very important for PMs and TDs to have a knowledge of their system. They don't have to know all, everything about it. Because, again, some of those designs are creative decisions. Like taking a projector and turning it vertical, that's a creative decision. What I need to know from a PM and a TD is, do the projectors that you have, can they do that? Most right. can't. Here's a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> right. And do you have a solution to that yeah. problem? Yeah. It's all collaborative. I remember a time when there weren't sound operators, no head of sound, and the same issues came up. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? Or you have a, one microphone, what are you doing? It just takes, how hard is it? But there's, I suggest that it's not as cut and dry as we're making it be, is that it's a gradual evolutionary process. And this, this element, in a way, is dealing with both... Um, uh, light and sound, so it's it's a two things that are that need to be rethought, and those two already exist. So and now we just have a new version of it mm -hmm. and scenery, and then you could add Absolutely. the complication of automation because if you're doing 3D mapping mapped to scenery that is moving, which is happening a lot, mm -hmm. not necessarily in Canadian theater stages, but it's happening in rock shows and. And large operas and stuff. So, so that, that is happening. projectors, right? You just yeah. <laughs> That's what they call the panties. Operator for Pony. Yeah. I was told today about this new, this new system. Uh, not that I used to work for cast lighting in Toronto. This is not a plug for cast lighting necessarily. But they have this new system called um, uh, black, 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 black Box. Black Box? Black, black Tracks. Box. Black Tracks. Black Track. Black Track is what it's called. And the, there's a little IR um, signal. Each person has an IR signal. Somebody... Um, I was told about this today. I don't know who it was. There may be a video someplace. Um, but uh, they had put the IR signal that says, this is my um, spot. Basically, it's supposed to be a, re a replacement for follow spots. So you've got an IR signal and a receiver, and then a follow spot or a moving light follows the person around. They've basically perfected it. It's a pretty incredible system. Somebody has taken that and used it for video mapping. So they've got 3D objects that when they spin, the program knows where they are in space. So when they turn, these, it's mapped the six sides of the box in the video mm -hmm. system. So when it spins, it knows that side B is showing and it changes the, it changes the image as the box turns. It's, and it's three-dimensional video projection on things that are moving that in are space. Moving. It's the most incredible. I'm sure the Terragon will have it next year. Oh, Absolutely. yeah, definitely <laughs> Terragon. <laughs> but I mean, that, that does speak to like, your, your average theater-trained PMTD is not going to know how that system works. Mm. And for that matter, most video designers aren't going to know how that works either. So that you're still going to need that third, let's call them the video TD, to be that person that makes that system work. Because my job is on this show is just to make content. Right. And that's been mm. interesting for us as, as, as projection video designers in the amount of knowledge that we often have to come to the table with exceeds I know my gel book and I know what a Lico does and I know what a Fresnel does. It, it like we often have to design the system as well or sit down with the whole production team and go, okay, so we're gonna do it like this and put it all together like this because the director wants to see this happen. And the only way we can do X is to go through 
A <laughs> and forward. Right. So it's and all of those things like to like for a director to know that there is a machine out there that can map to a six-sided object like one director to walk into a rehearsal hall with that idea and and it the whole world changes. And and so then then you get into the whole yes and no game. But yeah, it is it is all it is all it just gets infinitely more complicated. Let's segue no, into the actual gear. So, uh, is first of all, let's talk about the, the projectors themselves. Can the Tarragon Theatre or uh, GCTC here in Ottawa purchase quite reasonably a projector that will do for them most of the things they want it to do? Will it be bright That's, enough? Yes, but not the replacement bulb. But not the yeah. bulb. <laughs> no, it's true. Points, they don't make it. It's, uh, projectors are like uh, razors, right? Like the blades are more expensive than the razor. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of feel that it's somewhat of a mistake for a theater company to purchase a projector. And I say that because the, the speed at which projector technology is is increasing what you're able to I just saw a demo of a thing that's 139 watts works on 120 power and it's a 20k projector like it's beautiful modular system I don't I think it's it makes a lot more sense to rent but then you also have to compare it to how long do you run it and so if you make a huge investment then you're going to want to put projection in every show if you buy a a $50,000 projector, I'm, I would want to put it in every show in my season too. And, and I think one of the key, what you said was everything they want to do. And that's going to be different for every show. I actually went through it with GCTC, who does own some projectors. Um, and it, we didn't have the right piece. We didn't have the right equipment to do what we wanted to do, regardless of the fact that they own some stuff. Um, so we still had to go rent and borrow and buy to make it all work. So... Yeah, and it is changing so fast. I, is it worth having a discussion of, of the specific gear, or is that something you're going to have to, to have a discussion with the, with the rentals agency that you're getting it from? Like, is it something that changes so often that it, it's really not worth having that discussion? Like, I don't know how, how fruitful that would be, but... Really, it, well, I mean, like, um, like is, there, is there a bare minimum? Do you, want, do you mm-hmm. need a projector that is this bright, that has an internal shutter? Can they be DMX-controlled? Um, All of those things things? in the last three years, my bare minimum has changed because I work on a show, uh, the next show I work on is just slightly bigger. So my bare minimum is no longer a a 5.5K projector, which we own. My bare minimum now on any show would be a 10 to 15K projector because once I've seen the brightness of a 40K projector, I'm going to at least (laughs) want a a quarter of that rather than an eighth. And that's not just us as designers. That's human beings and what our eyeballs are getting used to and retina displays and resolutions in the airports of the TV monitors. Like the resolutions and brightness of of things that we just see in everyday life have changed our eyeballs. For me, it it seems to be going the opposite direction. Um, When I first started, the first time I tried it was with a 13-inch black and white CRT screen and an 8-inch lens. 
And if I got the theater really, really dark and had a lot of buildup, it actually worked. It barely worked, but it worked. And then uh, when all the business and educational type uh, low-end projectors came out, they sort of worked too. What's happened is, and I think why you're saying this is, uh, especially in the U.S., everybody has backlights in the audience's eyes all the time, all day long. It's, and somehow that's going to get your attention. For me, that loses my attention. And what gets my attention is that high contrast, and often lower resolutions are far more uh, interesting than really high brightness. And um, the projectors are more than competing with stage lights. They're taken over. And I've seen many shows where the, the projections, not because of the design content, but because of the physical uh, luminosity of them is just too high to, to suit the situation. There's always a different thing. And I agree. At the higher end, absolutely rent it because <laughs> it changes every day. At the lower end, it's a couple thousand dollars. Start over again next week with if the next show needs something else and don't worry about it. That's the thing, though. I think when Tarragon and GCTC buy a projector, they want to use it for 15 years. That's not going to work. Yeah. No. no. We know well, that. Well, <laughs> there's all kinds of other things we buy that don't last for 15 it, years uh, either. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, just the traditional theater model in Canada has been to purchase lights. So yes. it's a large capital cost. And then 15, 20 years later, we purchase some more newer lights. Yes. Right. But sometimes, many often, those low old lights go to smaller theaters or they stay in the inventory anyway because he's needing more now. It's not because of that. <laughs> yeah. And so the same thing happens with projectors, I find. Uh, yeah. They end up in the back room of theaters and they get pulled out when you need a little dim projection upstage left. It's not in, It's a blurry thing. You don't need... But the problem kind of with, in particular with projectors would be that eventually that manufacturer is not going to make that bulb anymore. Absolutely. And or as well. Or as yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about control? So we've got the video projector. So whatever we choose is going to be suited for the purpose that we're using. using I think before you jump to control, yeah, I think you go back to resolution. Okay. Because resolution affects control. Right. Yeah. And uh, and resolution is, I think, oftentimes what's required at the far end, at the final product, more often than not, the resolution doesn't have to be as high as we think. No. And that's I, going to save a whole bunch of processing and guts and all kinds of things. And I think people try to over, they overthink it with resolution too often and, and they really should be because guess what you're shooting this on fog that's my surface do I really need HD on my fog no um, so what's the surface what are they what are they you got to start from resolution before you go anywhere else I think right. what's my surface what am I shooting how much how much is important so I think that resolution really starts the conversation right. because that's what's going to lead every other piece of gear in the system and how much time you have to spend rendering, right? Yeah. So, and how? Uh, and so, so talking about the surface, do we need fancy? Like, does every projection surface have to be retroreflective? No, hell no. Or does it like, no. you know, like, what is there a special? Uh, it, I, I, it comes back to sort of design, and again, design uh, collaboration. I, I find many set designers when they want to integrate video have integrated a screen. But a screen is looks like a screen. It, it, it's a screen. It's not interesting. What if you put a nice little frame where it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of yeah, tilty, you know? 
Or if it's and round. That's, yeah. And that actually speaks to why sometimes it doesn't feel integrated because it's not integrated. It's right. a screen. You've cut out of your set and stuck a projector behind it, and it looks like that. Um, I think you have it. There's an example on Parliament Hill. They're, they're projecting onto gray sandstone. Like it's, <laughs> you can project on that anything you can project onto water you can project onto silk you can like the number of times i've had set designers come and say will, will this fabric work yeah is it fabric <laughs> it'll, it'll work is it, and yeah. is it what is our desired effect and what are we trying to achieve and, so do we have to like uh in the in the olden days uh we used to <laughs> when you want to project on scrim like shark's tooth black scrim you had to have well, it has to be black and white that's our only option because everything else is going to lose definition. Well, you are going to lose definition, yeah. but that's then a very strong creative choice. So I can turn everything black and white. I can get it so black and white that it looks like Sin City, right? Where it's really black and it's really white and it looks like makeup or we shoot you so, it, so you are made up. Uh, that, that's a creative choice. That's a dramaturgical cho choice in your show. For me, it's contrast ratio, and it ultimately comes back to that question of resolution and color. I mean, if the room is dark enough, and if you have that resolution, and it's not what the manufacturers call contrast ratio, because they're always measuring the high end. That's the brightest thing between the brightest thing and the next little notch below for your PowerPoint. When, in fact, what we're usually interested in is what's that level between one quarter and one eighth? And then all of a sudden, it's totally different. Um, because that's where the subtlety comes from, is and where I think the, uh, a lot of the art can come from. That's not just all what we think of as commercial video, but more artistic video. Um, it's just that it's not talked that, about that way. So it's a question of whatever tool you have. Rather than, for me, it's not finding a tool that will do what you need to do. It's take that tool that you have, and what's the best way you can use that to tell what you need to tell? And is there a way of having a discussion? Uh, like this idea of resolution seems like a question, like I wouldn't discuss with my director, you know, what should I use a 19 degree source for or a 26 degree source <laughs> for? They're going to tell me I want it to be blue and it has to be at night. So the question of resolution is something that the designer has to specifically, like what questions it's do you ask? It's that same question. Is it blue and do you want it to be at night? It's that same, like, are you looking for like, Hot, super realistic like do we want them to look like they're in you know in in the forest or are we looking for something a little more Monet or we you start employing film technique or film terminology or you know do you want really sharp lines or is it is it softer is it somewhere in between or are we doing both or so it becomes that aesthetic conversation as far as the tech goes, do you, uh, and this is my own ignorance, do you have to, are there parameters of the projector you can change on the fly, or does it all have to be done with the image? Uh, <clears throat> the projector, some projectors have a controllable dowser, which controls the contrast ratio before the shutter actually mm -hmm. closes, but no matter what happens, just like when you run a, a scroller in front of a projector, that last frame of black or not black is obvious. Right. <clears throat> right. But having timed controlled fade offers more subtler options. But I would never say, like, when you're doing a full blackout, if you black out the lights and then black out the video, Whoops. you'll always have black out the video. You'll yeah, always see it. Right. Yeah. So the, the, there's not, the technology hasn't progressed from. Like what LCD? A, a like projector a, is yeah. always emitting light, right? right? So when it's, it's 
when it's projecting black, it's projecting yeah. the absence of color, not right. the absence of light. Right, right, right. Unlike a light bulb. <laughs> My mind is just blown. <laughs> yeah. And okay. ironically, we used to put cards in front of candles, so we'd block it. So we'd block do it the it same it. way. Yeah. It's just what kind of shape card, how do you move it? Yeah. <laughs> right. I went saw, there was a, a little digression. There was a uh, carbon, carbon cartors. My French is terrible. Carbon 14. Carbon 14. <laughs> uh, dance troupe came to uh, Des Moines, and they did a fade-in of a, of a candelabra. I don't know if you saw the show, where they started at the uh, grid, and they just, over literally five, ten minutes, flew the candelabra in that was lit, uh, live flame, and it went from pitch black to barely black to barely less black, uh, and it was the most incredible fade I've ever seen. So do I have to take my projector uh, on a, I don't know, on a carriage and sort of slide it into place. In. I guess you can't do that. No. But I, I, no, but you can use a moving mirror in front of your projector. This yeah. is where hacks have started to come in that mm-hmm. have developed products that actually do that. So there are movable body projectors or right. mirrors that can go in front of projectors, and so you move that light out of the way. For me, it's the same issue with um, uh, moving lights. We don't have moving lights. Unless you get a guy, pick it up, and move it over there, and then you can move it. <laughs> Same thing happens with video projectors, right? Or anything. We've just got wiggly things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, how about, uh, uh, is, uh, are we okay with the discussion about resolution? Oh, yeah. No, but no, I think that's where it started. That's okay, what I'm great. saying no, before. Yeah, what so, can drive what? So no more uh, video cassette machines. Video cassette machines. <laughs> I'm 800 years old. <laughs> uh, no, more, no more VHS machines or beta. Whoa. I know, uh, and a video switcher like what? What or uh, or, or toggle switches or a guy plus and play? What do we? How do we control video these days? How should it be controlled? How easy is it? How expensive is it? Computers. <laughs> We're using computers nowadays. That's they're on the internet. <laughs> there are these fancy things. They come in these little boxes. I have no idea what you're talking see, about. See, I use computers and, and black wrap and gel and <laughs> mirrors and fabric, whatever it is. Uh, there are, there are a multitude of programs. Uh, QLab offering video has certainly democratized mm-hmm. uh, video production for most scales of theater. QLab 3, its current incarnation, can do a lot more than just fade up a picture or a movie and fade out a movie. Um, there are a multitude of tools out there, but in three large festivals that I've done work for, we use Watchout. Our company owns Watchout uh, only because it's a large-scale product uh, that can do quite a bit, but it's with within a reasonable price range. So, it, like, if I if I can you tell me what the price range is? Uh, what I uh, the original way watch out worked is you had software dongles each display required a display computer and you could have as many <clears throat> display devices as you needed they all had a dongle and they were all controlled by one master computer that also had a dongle now watch out can do up to six outputs per computer on one dongle so its cost effectiveness has increased by 600%. Do you need six video cards, or is it all Ethernet? It's all one video card. Okay. Yeah, so you're building a really beefy machine right. then. Yeah, so whereas you used to have like five, it you know, it was like $5,000 a channel-ish, now you can squish a lot of that into, because pr- everything's gotten better, right? We have solid-state hard drives and all of that good stuff. So 
um, things have gotten better, but it's still quite expensive. I, I think the software is a couple of thousand dollars per dongle, and then you got to build your machines, and then you have to have your control machine. They so also mm-hmm. offer uh, a standalone player called a Watch Packs, which has the dongle built in for about four thousand dollars. It can do two outputs, but it can't do any inputs. So when you when you're integrating something like a camera or live camera into your work. Uh, you're going to have to do it some other way. Right. Now, what if um, I'm uh, TDT, maybe not TDT, something something smaller, some sort of uh, independent dance company, and I want to use video. Can I? Is this within my budget to rent? Um, let's say it's one image or it's one projection surface, it's one projector. Uh, um, do I have to use this or can I use a laptop? With- you could use the laptop. You could use QLab. I know TDT actually has used QLab. Uh, Isadora is is very much the dance world's product. Uh, I find it really cumbersome to program and operate, but it's it was designed by a guy from Trochia Ranch Dance Company in New York, and he has his own company, Trochiatronics, and he developed uh, this very cool media server that's like looking at the insides of uh, Quartz Composer, which is the language that a Max you that Max do all their visual information, and you're strangely enough you're drawing lines between this module and this module and this module to make a video come out. It's a flow chart. Yeah, yeah, you map it. But uh, for the single dance company, single image. Oh, I don't know, a laptop projector, PowerPoint, and a card to black out the projector. Yeah, you can do it. As long as you have a PA to hold the cart. Yep. Yeah, but I found after years of doing this and seeing all the mechanical ways of doing that and the commercial dowsers, the most efficient system I've seen is a thread going up to the pipe and a guy going like this. It's quiet. It's smooth. You can do lots of variable, easy. YPT had uh, the DMX black wrap. This is open and closed. And it was probably the most... We have... worked every time. We own a... A series that doesn't use DMX, so there's a switch, a hard switch in line. It does the same. Heathens. Doesn't use DMX. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, well, speaking of that, now, how do you, can you, like, we we know you can control video with, uh, through MIDI, right? Is that correct? So you can integrate your lighting console or your sound console with the video. Mm -hmm. Is that a good idea, or is that a terrible idea? Or does it depend on them? It it totally depends. Um, Some media servers that they're selling upstairs, quite lovely ones, uh, work specifically as a moving light instrument. Mm -hmm. They show up to a moving light console as a moving light instrument. So go on timeline four. It's a DMX device. Is it a good idea? It's a perfectly good idea for that product. Uh, Is that product right for your show? That's the second question. And I can't necessarily guarantee that it is. Should um, PMs and TDs, and for that, for that matter, um, theater boards, should they be investing in control versus uh, projecting projection equipment? Or is the control equipment moving at such a fast pace that you want to hold off as well? It's moving at a fast pace, but they're already investing in that. I don't think you'd find any theater company on earth that isn't playing their audio out of a computer, mm-hmm. right? And so they're at least... They own QLab or SFX, and both those programs can play video. Right, 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 right. Do you have to have, uh, and again, my ignorance, do you have to have specific, like if you, can you just take your, your QLab computer and just start playing video, or do you have to have high, higher capacity, do you have to need solid state drives, or do you need anything to make it more secure so it's not going to crash? Or uh, Well, yes, yeah. but 
it's a, it comes back to the resolution question, like how much are you driving? What are you driving? Are you driving seven channels of HD video all at the same time? You're going to want to have a pretty beefy computer, and I wouldn't say that QLab would be the way to go because that's using one CPU to drive that much content. Whereas if you were to do it in the watch-out world, to do seven out, you would have at least two computers splitting that load. I, I did a show a couple years ago, and I found we ran into the same, same old issues. Uh, how do you make black? How do you do multiple projectors? And all these expensive ways to do it. And then I realized that gamers were doing the same thing. I was doing a show in a museum. It was a theatrical show, not a museum show. And there were three projectors, and I needed to control them all together to make a Panavision thing. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that they're doing the same thing with three screens. And you can get something called a triple head that mm -hmm. does three different outputs from one. It's really simple. You just set the resolution, blur the edges. It was brilliant, simple, and really yeah. cheap, like $200. And QLab 3 now allows you to look at your triple head to do so that the, they don't just line up. You can do overlap. Mm -hmm. Why you do overlap? rather than line things up is because when you're syncing multiple outputs or you're trying to fit your video frames within the what the set has allowed you want overlap to to occur to to make that happen so it's 15 by 30 feet is not necessarily going to work out in your aspect ratio of 1920 by 1080 times two right so you want that blend to equal in the watch out world ideally you have 30 percent of your image crossing over wow. you can do you can do less there's a bit of work and ever and most good projectors can actually do some of that edge blending as well Yourself, yeah. um so for example at the shaw festival we let the projectors do the edge blend and don't let watch out do it but watch out treats the output as one screen I was shocked how simple it was using old old world techniques with it. You just take the two outside projectors and move them in, overlap it, and put a little piece of frost gel on yep. the on this one, on that one. Well, a little great. It was shocking how how rough it was and how uh, clean it looked. Uh, when you with, get you know, into no things time. like four projectors or six projectors that have overlapped, so you're going to have a corner that software doesn't really deal with the fact that you've overlapped in the in the center right. four, four times four time. that right. pixel. Right. Brightness uh, tape is an yeah. amazing, <laughs> <laughs> incredible. But we're still doing that after That's all these awesome. years. Oh, I've we still do it. I've never made like a tape like to get a soft edge yeah, yeah, around yeah. so that the video black edge yeah, is soft. Yeah. yeah, you just you still put a, some tape in a gel frame and stick it to the front of the projector. Yeah, that's sticky back in the foil. days at, at YPT, <laughs> oh, yeah. we would do, we we did a we put plexiglass in front of the lens and then put the tape there. But then we discovered there's actually quite a bit of heat that comes well, out. There is. You could like no, over the course of the run <laughs> that started to. It didn't yeah. melt, but it certainly expanded. The other trick out. I found though is you can move that plane. If it's right in front of the lens, you get um, sort of a blurry image. If you want a sharper edge, if I'm, I'm masking with it, you move the masking further away, and you can get a sharper. You find out wherever it is. You've got a stick and whatever you need to make that edge. It's really easy to to make a map. Let's talk Matt. about, uh, uh, just uh, the last 15 minutes here, I want to talk about, uh, just for the PMs and TDs in the room as well, how much extra time do we need to put in the schedule? Like, oh, the video guy will just do it overnight when the painter's doing the floor. <laughs> Is that going to happen, or do you, like, how much time do you need? I guess it depends on the show, but let's say your standard two-projector, two two-projector But, but then show. I, I'm, so let's start, take it back four steps. 
Are the images being projected in the graphic, or are they storytelling with actors from the story in it? And as soon as you include those actors, we're now including costume design, costume construction, all the other design periods. So if you're including the people from your show, then all of a sudden they're on contract a heck of a lot earlier because you need all that time to do that work. Yeah. How much? How much time? Do, in your experience, how, how does it dilate? The, the, the production time you need, or are people just doing it in the same week and a half? Oh, God, no. Um, depending on the size of the show, I mean, the, our larger shows, we're doing, we're in tech for months. Yeah. Everybody, or we're in Everybody rehearsal. who's a producer here, their finger just went, months? <laughs> I'm not going to pay for but that. But in, in some cases, like we did a, a show with Tapestry, New Opera, uh, we were in rehearsal every day. We didn't have the whole video system set up, but in order to respond to the, the tempo at which these actors were, were now doing it, this, the maestro, in order to make sure our curves were all there, we would basically be designing in the rehearsal hall if we can't be doing it, if we can't at least be looking at everything. Yeah, and in that I scenario, think, we basically gave ourselves a four-week tech period. I think we, some of the things that... Uh, we're so traditionally used to a cue to cue only made sense back in the day when it was lighting cues and we're just going from lighting cue to lighting cue uh, whenever it's more integrated like that you're doing technical runs where everybody's trying to catch up and then we're all pausing and like fixing a, a video problem can be hours of re-rendering or milliseconds and sometimes the video designer doesn't know until he has to see what the problem is to know, okay, I just need 20 more minutes. Because any time a video designer says, I need 20 minutes to fix this problem, <laughs> yeah, he right. needs 20 more minutes to fix that problem. <laughs> right. Uh, that, uh, now, i take a poll of the room. People who are actually uh, still working in the business. Um, I found that it was, when I, when I was getting to the point, uh, I found the Q2Q largely useless from a design perspective. De technical runs are a much better way, I think, um, or even sequence. Like we're going to do the first 15 minutes four times. Uh, everyone get ready. Uh, is, that, is that what's going on these days? Like, how is, like Q to Qs, do they happen anymore with the type of integration that has to happen between sound and lights and video? Yeah. I think it absolutely depends, again, on the show. If the show, you know, if the show has cues that uh, are very well defined and that, that go together that way, then, then it's very valuable to do that twice to make sure early in the tech run that everyone's aligned. And then, you know, you're not going to do five Q to Qs, you're going to maybe do one, and you're going to say, let's make sure we're all aligned on what we're trying to do in this, uh, if it hasn't happened earlier in the process. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we go into the tech, you know, the full tech run-throughs. At some point, it depends also on whether your director and your, uh, your actors are going to be happy to stop if you're doing the tech run. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the uh, knowing the environment of those people. I, I, as a tech person, have to say, stop, I want to get this right, not we'll try and get it right tomorrow night again. Uh, right, but I, I would say the Q to Q is very important in touring because you, you get everything set up. You sure as heck are not going to re-tech the whole show. You want to load, load the cues. And you and your actors who are only here like the day before the show opens, you're just going to step through. It's usually a stop and start and then skip what we do because you've got a big long soliloquy. We don't need to go through that. 
So it's not a queue to queue, but it's a stop and start tech. Yeah, but that's when everything's finished. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like to get it finished, uh, you know, playing the part of the production manager, how much time do you need? Yes. Like, like, like yes. Let's say I was just going to say yes. Let's say you're in rehearsal for four weeks. <laughs> More than you got everything ready. Is it yeah. something you just tack on, or do you add another four hours for you? Like, yeah. like how much more well, time do you need? Yeah, no, those are great. I think because you also have to start from the beginning, and and like sound needs quiet time, video needs dark time to get everything right, and that's not that's not to be done on top of sound ringing out the house and which we've done which we've done which is like crazy making um that's that so that right there is for hours minimum depending on how many projectors am i focusing how many led walls am i installing like how many how many things like i don't know that there's a formula i think it's really a show by show thing but it is you have to add time it's not well you have to work with the lighting designer because lighting and video in particular have to work together when they're setting levels and colors and all that stuff, so that increases the time that both those departments are engaged and active. But you're you're sort of you're almost adding another lighting design if you want to think about it in the old-fashioned terms. It's another lighting lighting level session. It's you're just yeah. doubling it. And you can never because they're so integrated. You can never really like have a video session with the director without the other without department. the other right. departments. It doesn't right. work. Ironically, when we were using analog film, in some ways it was more efficient with time because you had to send it out to the developer to come back again anyway. <laughs> so you go work on something else, and when it was actually done, you went in, you did it. And then when your right. slides were a week late, uh, yeah. the lab got <laughs> to, 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 to the to the question about uh, PMs trying to figure it out. I know certainly PMs in large festivals that have early openers and late openers. They're not going to put the video heavy show in the late openers because those four hour sessions that you get because you only get the actors here every now and then. I, I, I imagine video would not work well in that scenario. Even just getting it all up and running would eat up that four-hour queuing session. Now here's a, another tech question of tech. Um, especially if, it's, if we're not talking about um, uh, video or projections as scenery, if we're talking about video uh, and projections as telling another bit of the story, very often it's integrated with audio. Maybe yeah. you've got a vocal track on the film that mm -hmm. you're running or the video that you're running. How do you work that out with sound? Whose responsibility is that? <coughs> and is that, uh, it's, do you just give them a, you know, a stereo feed, feed or like is it something you really have Ideally, to Ideally you give them a stereo feed if it's integrated, but we can also lock to time where we can give them the track literally separate and they can then manipulate it how they need to do it. Because if I just give you a stereo feed, you may want to put it in different speakers with a totally different time alignment than just a stereo feed out from me. Like if you want, if you have a multi-output uh, sound system like LCS, where you want to fly it around the room, my stereo feed might not work to do that fly around the room. Though the timing will be the same, so we might share a go. So sometimes in the watchout world, audio will give watch out the the go for that cue or vice versa video will give the go to audio for that cue right, they're synced. Right. yeah Is it i've done a show that was all done simty time code right. so all the lighting everything was done to time code as a stage manager <laughs> i'd be extremely frightening frightened <laughs> to do a show to simty time code because what if somebody trips or this or the fly comes in late or something so mm. how do you uh 
what kind of safety valves do you put in the system to yeah. to fix that? Directors. No, oh, right, 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 right. That's when you use it all the time. Museums. I don't know that there are time codes you can other fix. Other than to build your show in such a way that mm. enables that. Right. I mean, you can't you can't help a dancer from tripping in a sequence, right? And once the sequence starts, the sequence starts. So they have to find their point. Yeah. Right. Which is just like a sound cue. You can't back a sound mm -hmm. cue up in the middle of a performance either, right? No. Um, but what if it's going? What if you're going to a blackout <laughs> at the end of the sequence? So I guess you have to have operators that are. I think everybody needs to. That comes back to the integration and also an understanding of all the things that are happening in the show. Right. It's so nerve wracking to hand over a show to operators who actually don't know the show. <laughs> um, which comes back to our favorite way to tech is the stage manager is there to observe the process and take notes on, but doesn't necessarily have to give the GO because the operator is so integrated into the design that yeah. they are taking their go. I find that's more and more the case in, in all elements. Uh, I see more, more theaters working with everybody doing their own thing and stage managers are watching the overall. They're not calling If those. anybody's ever worked in Europe, that's very much how it's done. Yeah. Um, that the stage, there is still a stage manager and oftentimes they're on stage, which is ironic. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they don't tell somebody to hit a button, yeah. creating that weird leg. But I think of, part, go, go, part go. of that reason is, is what, what Paul said, is it's more and more we're finding technical runs or seg segments of the show. We're not going cue to cue. We don't need somebody to tell us what line we're starting from because we're not. <laughs> we're going to well, go tell the answer. like over. in our case, we'll have to scrub backwards a third of the way through the timeline. And not, find it. And not, it's take, like yeah. to figure out, okay, And that'll take longer than there, just going back and starting yeah. over. Yeah. 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 Is there a way of putting time points? in the video so you can don't have to like go back and forth and back and forth or can you go back like 30 seconds 30 seconds or can you put markers and say here's the point where the you know the plane mm -hmm. takes off you can put those markers in depending on whatever Fine. kind of system you use if right. you're using QLab you might just have to know pretty intimately the actual time code right. to know that at 30 seconds in is the airplane crossing yeah you as a designer you just sort of give yourself little points to do that. Generally though, I find if anything is, it's easier often to just start at the top of a sequence. But like certainly people are doing audio design or working in theaters with like Richard Farron does all these beautifully layered sounds that for him to get the sequence right for it to be in scene two, he actually has to start at the pre-show and then scrub through, okay, go on that cue, go on that cue, go on that cue, go on that cue, because the cricket loop was in the pre-show and it has to be playing for scene two. <laughs> Damn cricket looks <laughs> crazy every time. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, with four minutes left for, or three minutes left for a break. Ah, oh, three minutes left. I'm not going to cover three minutes. I think we've gotten to a point where we can stop, right? Yes. Sure. Okay. There'll be coffee. Thank you. We'll be back in 18 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a Thank true you, sir. <laughs> I'll see you at last. And that wraps up part one of Projections and the Future of Design at the CITT Rendezvous 2014. Next time, the second half of our discussion. Yes, the audience actually came back after the break, where we continued our discussion about the implications of using video in your design. 
The music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the band 1990s called See You at the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about the podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the TitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com forward slash the Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the titleblock at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you watch the dancers in white unitards try to exit gracefully during a, quote, blackout after the PA fell asleep waiting for her cue to blackout the projector. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>